We're going to study scripture together, so if you would open up your Bible to 1 John, we're going to be studying through this book of 1 John together, starting this very morning and walking through this for, Lord willing, eight weeks. Uh, John is here reinforcing the basics of the Christian life. Apparently, this was around the area of Ephesus and false teaching. We're toward the end of the very first century, and false teaching has cropped up, and it is taking over and spreading like gangrene even within the church, and some are denying that Jesus Christ was God come in the flesh. Even some who had professed faith in Jesus were now disavowing that faith and leaving the church and and forsaking and compromising on convictions that had been such a formative part of their profession. And so we're, we're going to learn in chapter 2 that that was taking place, and we're going to learn in chapter 2 that while those were departing, John is writing this to say, you need to remain. You need to remain steadfast, and here's how you remain. Here's what it means to be a disciple. Here are the convictions that ground us as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ. And so John is reinforcing these things. Even in the broader world of the Roman Empire, so Emperor Domitian has rose to power, and he is, he is turning up the heat of persecution. This is the third wave of persecution. Herod Agrippa brought it in 42-ish A.D., and then Nero brought it in 65-ish A.D., and then Domitian brought it in 85-ish A.D. So this is just third wave of oppression that is bringing heat to the people of God. And John comes right here in the very outset of his letter, and he says, I was an eyewitness. I saw Jesus. We saw him alive. We ate with him. We fellowshiped with him. We heard his message. We saw him alive on the other side of the grave. We have reason to hold fast, fellow believers. That's what John is doing in this letter And he's reminding them of the basics, and he doesn't waste any time. 1 John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, we'll just read the intro together. He writes, What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have observed and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, That life was revealed or manifested, and we have seen it, and we testify and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. What we have seen and heard, we also declare to you so that you may also have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ, we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your all-sufficient word. We pray that the truth that is here in your word, inspired by you, given to the Apostle John, that it would secure your people, it would stabilize us and hold us fast, and that we, your people, would remain faithful to you all our days and run this race all the way to the finish line. For the glory of Christ, we pray. Use this letter to do exactly what you did in the first century. Create a people who live for your glory and your praise here in Jesus' name, amen. So it's a book about discipleship. Let me ask you the question. This is a very basic question, right? So how do you live as a follower of Jesus? Think about it for a second. How, what does that look like to live as a follower, as a disciple of Jesus Christ? What are, let's get more specific. What are the beliefs that must be embraced? What are the non-negotiable core elements of the faith once for all delivered to the saints? What are the beliefs that, let's say you're discipling somebody, they just come to faith and they say, I don't know this, I've never read this before. What's the most important stuff? What are you gonna tell them? What are the core beliefs? Not only the beliefs, what are the core practices? 
What are the means of grace? What makes Christians strong? What are the things that we have been given in God's word to do and doing them, leaning into them, God meets us in that place and makes us stronger as followers of his? This is, these are the core questions of what it means to be a disciple, the basics. And it's so important for us, no matter how old you are in Jesus, it's so important for us to grasp the basics again and again and again, the free throws and layups of the Christian life. You never move past that. We need those constantly in our lives to be re-strengthened in our lives. In his best-selling book a number of years ago, a book called When Pride Still Mattered, A Life of Vince Lombardi, author David Marinus explains what happened when Lombardi walked into training camp the summer of 1961. He writes this. He took nothing for granted. He began a tradition of starting from scratch, assuming that the players were blank slates who carried over no knowledge from the year before. He began with the most elemental statement of all. Gentlemen, he said, holding a pigskin in his right hand, this is a football. And if you know the rest of the story, he proceeds to tell, in some cases, Pro bowlers, Max McGee, pro bowler from the Packers. He proceeds to tell Max McGee the fundamentals of how to block and tackle. He's talking with very equipped, very trained athletes, and he's reviewing the very fundamentals of the game of football. And I love that line that he had there. He took nothing for granted. And the Apostle John, in a sense, is doing that for Christians. It's sort of the equivalent of Lombardi's, this is a football. But John is saying, right at the outset, he's saying, this is Jesus Christ. Let's review the basics. This is Jesus. His origin, this is his identity. And he's going to talk about that and unfold that in this letter. And then he's going to say, that's Jesus, and this is the church. This is the people he died to create. This is the fellowship his gospel makes possible. The very basics, Jesus and the church, Christ and the fellowship that his sacrifice made possible. So here's my goal today. This is just an introduction. The first four verses are John's introduction to the larger uh, letter and the things that he's going to develop there. So since these four verses are just introduction, that's what we're going to do. We're going to follow that same pattern, try to get oriented to the larger letter of 1 John, spend a fair amount of time on that, And then we're going to come back around and look at these first four verses in a very introductory fashion, knowing that we're going to have eight weeks to drop into them much more deeply in coming weeks. So, and I hope along the way, even as we're reviewing the introduction, the authorship, the background of this letter, I hope all along the way you're going to be feeling the value of this letter for your life as a follower of Jesus Christ. So, introduction to 1 John, point number one underneath that, is it's an epistle, a.k.a. a letter. So again, assuming nothing, epistle is just a fancy word for letter. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, you read through the New Testament, so beginning with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Acts, and after you finish reading the book of Acts, everything from that point until right before the book of Revelation, everything you're reading between those places is mail. It's letters that were sent to people, sent to congregations. So Paul, the Apostle Paul, writes two letters and he sends them to the church at Corinth, a congregation that met in the city of Corinth. First Corinthians is one letter and second Corinthians is the second letter. Paul sends two personal letters to uh, a church leader named Timothy, first Timothy and second Timothy. He sends another letter to Titus. He sends a letter to a guy named Philemon who was a slave owner and that letter is just to say, hey, I met a guy who used to work for you. I'm sending him back, his name is Onesimus. When I send him back, I want him not to be treated like a slave but as a brother because he's in Christ. That's the purpose of the letter of Philemon. So you're reading mail all throughout. A big chunk of your New Testament is you intercepting mail. But it's mail that didn't just have relevance for that original audience, but in God's divine inspiration, it has massive, life-changing relevance for us right here in the 21st century. So you come all the way to the end of the New Testament, and you find three letters that were sent, not by the Apostle Paul, but in this case, the Apostle 
John, and the first one, the first letter is the one that we're reading. So let's just talk about the author, John, for a minute. This is in your notes about the author. He was the brother of James and one of the 12. So James and John were the sons of a man named Zebedee, and you meet them earlier in in the Gospels. They were handpicked by Jesus. Jesus looks at James and John. He says, I want you guys. Follow me. Come with me. So what's that mean? It means John was there. When he says he was an eyewitness, he was an eyewitness. I mean, he was there when Jesus fed the 5,000. Miracle sandwiches going out to 5,000 people. And John's the one handing them out. And he goes back and there keeps being more. John was a guy with his hands on the sandwiches that just kept multiplying. He was there. He was there when they almost all died on the Sea of Galilee. And, and there were, the, the boat was just going every which way, and they're crying out, and they think that they're going to die. He was there. He was there when that same boat beached, and the next thing you know, there's a demoniac running in Jesus' direction, and the moment that he comes to Jesus, he falls down before him and says, have you come to torment us? He sees demons buckle before this man that he's chosen to follow. He was there. John, you keep following his life, John was, was the only disciple who was close enough, of the 12, who was close enough to hear Jesus whispering prayers from the cross. John may have had blood spatter. He was that close. He was there with Mary. Matter of fact, he's the only disciple that was directly addressed by Jesus from the cross. Jesus said, I'm going to entrust my mom to you before I'm about to go. I'm about to die here, but I want my mom to be cared for. Apparently, presumably, Joseph was dead by that point because he says, woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. And the text says in John chapter 19, from that hour on, Mary was taken into the household of John. Of all the disciples, Jesus says, I'm entrusting my mother to you, John. Care for my mother. John was in Jesus' innermost circle, and by that, I don't just mean the 12. I mean the three, the three names that are repeated over and over in the Gospels, Peter, James, and John. Peter, James, and John. If there is a group that's smaller than the 12, that group is, odds are, it's going to be Peter, James, John with Jesus. He even gives them nicknames. Peter's original name was Simon. He said, I'm going to call you Peter, basically Rocky. I'm going to get, so he just kind of nicknames him Rocky. You're Rocky from now on, right? And then he names James and John, their brothers, and they're, they're constantly arguing who was the greatest among them. That's, that's them, right? And so he names them Boanerges, which is a word that simply means sons of thunder. Sons of, it's a, it comes from an Aramaic word meaning agitation, turmoil, quarreling. You guys never stop. I'm going to just call you this. Boanerges, right? They're close enough to get nicknames from Jesus. This is innermost circle. John's brother, James, the next point, your notes, was martyred by Herod. He was the first of the 12 to be killed by martyrdom. Next point, he was dearly loved by Jesus. When you, when you read the gospel, sometimes you'll, you'll see this reference to the disciple whom Jesus loved. In John chapter 13, there was one disciple who was, on the night before Jesus was crucified, there's one disciple who's reclining on Jesus as they're all sitting together at the Last Supper, and that disciple is John, is the author of this letter. Disciple loved by Jesus. This is the same John who gave us a gospel that looked back to the life of Jesus, the gospel of John. He's the disciple who gave us three letters about the life of the church in the present, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. He is the same disciple who gives us a look at the church in the future, in the book of Revelation. He has unique material in the New Testament corpus. He has been privileged by God to give us precious insight and words about Jesus and about what's to come. And the next point, he's the last apostle alive and still writing, likely in the 90s A.D. 
Jesus even referenced this in John chapter 21. There's this exchange, and, and it clearly gives Peter the impression that John is maybe going to live forever. And so that kind of word went out from that point. What was he meaning or implying when he talked about John and the rest of us drinking this cup and John not doing so? Is he going to live forever, right? Well, he did outlast them all. He did live for a long, long time. He outlasted all 12. I thought about titling this series, Last Man Standing. But I thought, that's, that's too focused on John. But the, but the thing that I love about that is when I read 1 John bearing in mind that he is the last man standing. It's something that stirs my heart in a unique way to know he's been faithful at this point for 60 years. All three waves of persecution have rolled over this man. He's got the I survived Nero t-shirt, right? He, he has walked through fire. He saw his brother get his head chopped off by Herod Agrippa. He he is a man of metal forged in the fires of affliction. He has deep, profound faith shaped by suffering. And there's something that impacts you when you know that and you read this letter and you know this is that man. This is his life. You ever bump into Christians, even today, you bump into a Christian and you, you find out they've been walking faithfully with Jesus for 40 or 50 years and what do you want to do? You want to say, tell me everything. How'd you do it? Tell me your story. When did it get hard? How'd you persevere? Tell me everything. And we have the opportunity, in a sense, to listen to John's writings and to say, tell me how you remained. It's one of his favorite words in his letter is remain. I think he uses it 21 times. Remain, remain, remain. Abide. Don't give ground. These stories have always affected me. It's one of the reasons why I love church history. I love stories of men and women who have stood firm in the battle. I remember the very first time I heard a story of a martyr. And uh, I was in a youth group back in New Orleans and probably, I don't know how old I was, maybe 16, 17. And I was in a youth group and the youth pastor was preaching that night on boldness in the faith. And he used an illustration of a guy I'd never heard of his name before. His name is Polycarp. And that was the first night I heard the story of Polycarp. And he told us about Polycarp. And we were so inspired by this, this martyr. Polycarp, incidentally, was discipled by John. That's how far back he goes. He was discipled by the man who writes first, John. And we heard about, the youth pastor told us a story about how he had had a, Polycarp had had a vision from God that your head... Uh, that there was this, this pillow under his head and that the pillow was on fire and that he was going to burn for the faith. And we were so taken by this story at the end of youth night that we like cranked up the sound equipment in the, the building and we went to the instruments and we wrote a song in the chorus. It was only a chorus. It was called, Your Head's Gonna Burn on the Pillow Tonight. And we just sang it. It was just this, it was just this grungy kind of, think Petra if you were alive in the 80s or 90s. It was just kind of, your head's gonna burn on a pillow tonight. It was just kind of going at it full steam on our uh, church drum set and Kurzweil keyboard just full on. But it wasn't just the, the your head's going to burn on a pillow tonight phrase that was our main takeaway. My, actually, my main takeaway from that point on was what happened when Polycarp stood before the emperor in the arena. And the emperor said, I'm going to make it easy on you. You're a very old man, and I don't want to have to kill you. And he says, I'm going to make it easy. You don't have to say Kaiser Kurios. You don't have to say Caesar is Lord like the rest of them. All you have to say is look to, in the direction of these Christian slaves and just say, away with the atheists, and I'll know what you mean by that because they disbelieve in the Roman pantheon. So you just say, away with the atheists, I'll know what you mean, and we'll be good. And Polycarp said, 80 and six years have I served him, and he has never been unfaithful to me. How could I now, standing before you, emperor, deny him and be unfaithful to him? No was the answer. <laughs> and he was killed for the faith. And here's John, last man standing, faithful to the end. And you know, part of why I want to study this book 
is that's the kind of Christian I hope God builds at the Church of Brook Hills. <laughs> in our ministry, as we look at the word together in small groups and community, as we strengthen one another through encouragement, I hope that's the kind of disciple that is being built here under the word. Starting with me, God, please. Here's the next point. The melody line of the book, this is how we know. So I would encourage you, when you study through a book of the Bible, it's particularly easy when the book is as short as 1 John. Just print it out, spread it across the desk or the kitchen table, and just start making observations and listen for, what I'm using this metaphor here, listen for the melody line. Is there, is there a phrase that keeps coming up, a term, a theme that keeps rising? And if you read through the book of 1 John, you hear this melody line. It just, it just keeps reappearing over and over again. This is how we know. Again, this is how I gave you some of the occurrences of it in chapter 2 and chapter 3 and chapter 4. So it's right here, especially in the center of the letter. John is going to use the word know 40 times in this short letter. Know it. Basically, that's him saying, church, the reason I'm writing this, I want you to know it. I don't want you stumbling around in uncertainty about whether you're in or out. I want you to know you're in. And be assured that you are in the faith and you belong to God. He doesn't want to leave that to nebulous mysticism. He says, this is how we know. And he gives famous, this is famously called the so-called three tests of John. And here they are. I should have put them in your notes, but I thought of it too late. Sorry. Three tests. How do you know you have God's life in you? So there's the doctrine test. Just put doctrine, love, and obedience. The doctrine test, the love test, in the obedience test. And we'll see these in turn. Again, we'll come back after this introduction message here this morning. We'll come back and dig into that. The doctrine test is basically that Christians believe certain non-negotiable truths and they tend to live right around the person and work of Jesus. So to doubt these central truths is to not be a Christian. You, you can't not believe that Jesus came in the flesh and was truly man and still be a Christian. You can't disbelieve that Jesus was and is the eternal God, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, and still be a Christian. Those are non-negotiables. You're, you're in or you're out. So there's the doctrine test. And since many were disavowing that particular doctrine because of the trendy movement of Gnosticism in the first century, he was saying, you need to drill down in this truth and believe it afresh. So the doctrine test, the love test, he says in so many ways, how do you know? How do you know that you belong to God? The love that you have toward your brothers and sisters in Christ. The love that we have in the fellowship of believers is a demonstration of the life of God in us. He says, how can you say you love God if you hate your brother? Your brother and sister in, in Jesus. And then the third is the obedience test. So Christians give evidence of new life by the way that we live. He says, this is how we know. We keep his commands. <laughs> we don't blow it off. We're not flippant about what Jesus said to do with our lives and to lean into and to believe with our lives. So it doesn't mean we're sinless, but we confess our sin, and he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We, so when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, and we got somewhere to go with our sin, but we're not flippant and just saying, hey, we sin. You know, everybody's, everybody's human. No, he says, no, Christians want to obey Jesus. He's the master. He's the Lord. He's the treasure. We want to obey him. So there's the obedience test, the love test, and the doctrine test. Again, John doesn't want to leave these believers in the late first century stuck in the maze of their subjective feelings, you know, do, am I, am, do I belong to God? Do I not belong to God? I've got a reason that I do. I've got a reason that I don't. He wants to give them some hard, concrete tests to apply. And the next truth is this. This letter encourages healthy and sober self-examination. Note the use of the word remain. Chapter 2, verse 6, the one who says he remains in him, so says he remains, you say that you're abiding in him, the one who says he remains in him should walk just as he walked. 
So there's a sign of remaining. There's a sign of life. Chapter 2, verse 10, the one who loves his brother or sister remains in the light. So church fellowship is a means of expressing that we are still in him. We're still remaining in this faith. We've not departed. That, that word, again, remain or abide, is used 21 times in this short book. And, and it's not left up to our own willpower. So we know God's spirit fills the believer. For what end? To empower you to persevere to the end so that it's not up to you and your own strength and muscle. The Holy Spirit is, as Paul says, God is at work within us both to will and to do for his good pleasure. He is working in us to equip us to persevere. And I love the fact that this is 60 years, 60 years down the road, and John looks back, and he was probably a young man, maybe college-aged. He was probably the youngest of the 12. And he thinks back 60 years when Jesus looked at him and his brother, and he said, I want you to follow me. And all these years later, 11 closest friends dead and his brother gone, and John's still kicking. He's still following Jesus. Again, what do you say to someone like that? Tell me everything. How do I stay? How do I persevere in the faith? How do I remain faithful? One more introductory note. Even though there is this accent on sober self-examination and, and there, it's, there's some unsettling stuff in 1 John, this point, its purpose is not to unsettle assurance, but rather to bolster assurance in genuine believers. You read through th those passages, there are more, but I gave you a sampling of passages that you can read through later where John's saying, hey, I'm not questioning you. I'm writing to you because you've believed. I'm writing to you, chapter two, verse 12, this kind of poem that he gets into. I'm writing to you because your sins have been forgiven, because you know the Father. I'm writing to you, you are in, you do know the truth. That's why I'm writing to you. The central statement of this whole letter I would submit to you is found in chapter 5, verse 13. Chapter 5, verse 13. And we have the luxury of, occasionally this occurs in biblical authors, where they say, I'm just going to tell you exactly why I'm saying all of this. It's a gift to interpreters and students of Scripture. John says, chapter 5, verse 13. I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. You believe, I want you to know it. I want you to know you have it. I don't want you wandering and wondering in doubt. I want you to know. And look how he ends the letter. If you're there and flipping over, just look at verse 20, the very almost the very end of the letter, he gets on this roll where he's saying, I think from verse 18, we know, we know this, we know this, and then he lands in verse 20, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us, you and me, believers, he's given us understanding so that we may know the true one. We are in the true one. That is, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. And in that way, when he finishes with, Jesus is the true God and Jesus is eternal life, I hope we're gonna see that he finishes right where he started. So if you would now flip back to chapter one. And I just wanna draw attention with our remaining time to two basics that John picks up on and emphasizes in introductory fashion, and we'll explore these more fully in coming weeks. So how an aged apostle takes us back to the basics, number one, this is Jesus. This is Jesus, and what does he say in verse one of chapter one? What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have observed and have touched 
with our hands concerning the word of life. Now just pause there for a second because it sounds like he's talking about a message, right? He's talking about the word of life, a message of life. But remember, this is John. This is the same John who likes to speak of Jesus in his gospel, in Gospel of John chapter one. He likes to speak of Jesus as what? The word. In the beginning was the word. God's best message was saved for last, and it's a person, Jesus Christ. So, so John is he's echoing that same kind of thing here, right? So look especially at verse 2, and you see it more clearly here. That life was revealed or manifested, and we have seen it, and we testify and declare to you the eternal life that was with The Father, we're talking about a person who is the eternal life, a person who was with the Father from the beginning. That's just like he begins his gospel. How did he begin his gospel? It's right here, John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, with the Father. And the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing that was created that has been created. In him, that is in Jesus Christ, was life. And he goes on, if you're familiar with John's gospel in chapter one, he goes on to say, the word became what? Flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Just like he says in 1 John, we saw the life the eternal life. He was standing on two legs in front of us. The life of God stood there. He came, he manifested himself in the incarnation. So let's put all that together. When John talks about Jesus being, verse one in 1 John, the word of life, and that Jesus was, verse two, with the Father, verse one, from the beginning, what is he doing? He's reminding us that Jesus Christ has eternally existed with the Father. That's a basic. That's a grasping the basic. Hopefully, if you've been a Christian for for some length of time, that's not news to you. That's like this is a football, right? Well, Well, John says that's really important, that Jesus eternally existed with the Father. He didn't start on Christmas Day. He was here for a long, long time before that. He was here before let there be light. He he stretches back into the infinite, eternal past with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. That is essential Christian doctrine, essential Christian faith. This is in your notes this way. He was from the beginning, meaning Jesus is the eternal God. So when John uses the word beginning, he he doesn't mean day one of creation. He means eternity past. Jesus Jesus has this moment where he prays with his disciples. And you know, (laughs) there are so many times where Jesus is saying things to them, and they're just not hearing it. It's just kind of, you know, it's just bouncing off. They're not getting it. He's saying it over and over, and it's just literally Teflon. Nothing's going in. And, and at one point, Jesus is praying in John chapter 17, and he says this thing, which had to stun them. He says, Father, glorify me with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Right? I mean, there's no way that they're grasping what that means, that Jesus, the Son of God, is as old as his Father. <laughs> that Jesus touching his divinity is older than his mother. He was, as Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. This is, this is mind-blowing, glory of Jesus stuff, right? And it's all over the New Testament. So for what purpose? So that you see how big your Savior is. He's not just a man. He's not you souped up. He's not you on steroids. He is God. He is the one through whom everything came into being. Nothing exists apart from him. You think about the most beautiful natural wonder you've ever seen. So I grew up, as many of you know, I grew up in New Orleans where there, there's not a hill. In New, I mean, there's no, you could put a skateboard down anywhere and it doesn't roll. It just stays there. 
The, the biggest hill in New Orleans is in the Audubon Zoo, and it's called Monkey Hill. It is an embarrassment to hills all over the world that it gets to claim the name hill. They're the closest sort of hill to my house, if I wanted to ride down something, I had to ride my bike to the levee, which was about two miles from my house. And I would ride to the levee, and I would just, for me, I am going so fast. Down, I am sailing all the way down that hill, all 24 feet. I am just trucking down that hill. That's the biggest thing we had in New Orleans was a levee. And so I'll never forget when I'm in the back of, uh, of the station wagon and we're, um, you know, with the wood panel, fake wood panel around the back and I'm sleeping in that flat area in the back of the station wagon and we're going on vacation and we had never been to this place before and I had fallen asleep in the afternoon and I woke up and it was sunset and I looked out the left window of that station wagon and we were in, I didn't know it at the time, but it was mountains. It was the first time I saw mountains and the sun was setting over the mountains. I can still see it. I said, where are we? I mean, I must have sounded like I was wrapped in wonder. Like, did we go to heaven? Like, did, are, where are we? And, and I remember my dad said, the Smoky Mountains. And I thought, well, the, the, so this is the best place on earth. The Smoky Mountains is the most glorious place on earth. Look, we wouldn't have the Smoky Mountains if it weren't for Jesus. Swiss Alps, no Swiss Alps, no Grand Canyon. Apart from him was nothing made that was made. Everything that's beautiful in the world was made through Jesus Christ. It's an awesome thing, the eternal God from the beginning. And to know mystery of mysteries, John Wesley said, that the immortal God becomes man. He became a man. Here's the next point. John is stunned, still, 60 years later. He's stunned by the glory of Christ. Are you? Are you still stunnable? Do we cultivate wonder at the glory of Christ? Do we recapture the wonder of the glory of Jesus Christ? Are, are our affections warm? toward Jesus Christ. Friends, I'm not sure there's a more important question that you could wrestle with than that. Are your affections warm toward Christ? Is he everything? Is he amazing? Still amazing. He's still amazing. His mercy, his sovereignty. Do you pray? So do we just take that passively? Like, oh, yeah, I'm not really feeling it right now. I'm kind of in a dry season. Look, dry seasons happen. But what are we doing? Now, what does the psalmist say? Soul, hope in God. Why are you so downcast, oh, my soul? Hope in God. He starts talking to his soul. He is stirring the pot, right? Bless the Lord, oh, my soul, and do not forget all his benefits. He's stirring the pot of warm affections for God. Do, do you do that? Do you pray that God, by his Holy Spirit, would increase your delight in Jesus? would warm your affection for Jesus, would increase your amazement at his grace, would increase your trust in his control and wisdom and sovereignty in your life and in the world. Do you ask for that? Oh, Christian friend, ask. Ask for it. When's the, when's the, last, time, when's the last time your heart soared in worship? Ask for it. One of the things that I pray for all the time for my, for my own life and, and even for us as a church, and it's a burden that I have for us as a church, is God, don't, um, don't let us look at the glory of Jesus in your word and be unmoved and just kind of yawn and say, pass the mayo. Like, it, don't, don't let us be unchanged by the glory we see. Don't let our kids get inoculated to the gospel where they get just enough to not catch the real thing. Let them be trapped, captured, ruined for the world because of the glory that they see in Jesus Christ through his word. John, I love his opening. <laughs> Look, the others use salutations and greetings under divine inspiration. 
we studied a salutation and greeting. So I, I, I love those. I'm so glad the Holy Spirit has inspired those. But I also kind of love John. John's like, no salutations, no greetings. This is Jesus we're talking about, right? He's breathless 60 years later, probably in his 80s or 90s, and he's still breathless. He's saying, look, did I tell you already? He says it three times. We saw him, we heard him. I said that before. We saw him, we heard him, we touched him with our hands. We were eyewitnesses. What is he essentially saying? He's saying, look, some of your friends have disavowed the faith. Yes, that's so sad. And he says, but you remain. Remain in him because 11 guys, my 11 friends, who took a picture on the beach on resurrection morning with Jesus Christ didn't suffer excruciating deaths to prop up a worldwide prank called Christian faith. We saw him alive after we saw him buried. Changed his life forever. That's why they couldn't shut up. That's why they couldn't shut up even when their lives were on the line and when they were threatened with death. And they said, sorry, as soon as you release us, we're going to go preaching again. Leads us to point number two. This is the church. This is the church. Underneath that is this. The church is a fellowship created by a message namely the gospel. Look at that. So look at verse 3, and you'll, you'll see where I'm getting that from. What we have seen and heard, we also declare. So there's a message that comes out of this encounter they've had with Jesus. We declare, and what's the product of that declaration? So that you may also have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship, now he's talking about the church, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. To so see that next point, believing the gospel brings us into fellowship ultimately with God. How, how does the church grow? I mean the capital C church, the church. How does the church grow? The church grows when the gospel is preached and God saves people. That's how the church ultimately grows. I was praying even last night that the church, that big church would grow, even this morning, that as we marinate in the glory of Jesus Christ, that there would be some who believe this gospel and the church grows because the, the message of good news was declared to you, you believed it, and into fellowship with the Father and the Son, you come. It's the product of gospel proclamation. It's supposed to do that. That's what missions is all about. Grows the church for the glory of Christ through the message, the saving message of Jesus Christ. We remember the basics of the gospel again and again and again. You think about what is the church? The church, the church is not a collection of people who, who have a commonly held position on some hot take issue that's gonna come up this week. What's it gonna be? I have no idea, but the church isn't defined by that hot take that comes up this week. The church is a collection of people who were dead and are alive, who were dead in transgressions and sins, were made alive together with Christ. By grace, we have been saved, and we've been rescued from certain judgment. That's what we are. We're those people, the saved ones, the rescued ones, the ones who've been called by name by God. We came alive, we heard his voice, and suddenly Jesus became the most compelling person in the universe. That's, that's what it means to become a Christian. The gospel that you yawned at before became compelling by the grace of God. And now it's the controlling center of your whole life. And you can't unsee what you saw. Praise God for that. So will, will you trust in Christ this morning? If you haven't run to Jesus in faith, will you do that this morning? You know, there was a crisis of faith that was confronting Christians during the time of the writing of this Letter, and as a result, there was a falling away that was taking place. I read a new survey that just came out a couple weeks ago from Barna Research Group, found that 76% of practicing Christians agree with this statement, quote, the best way to find yourself is by looking within yourself. 
72% of practicing Christians believe that, quote, to be fulfilled in life, you should pursue the things you desire most. Friends, that is the gospel of the culture. That is the, that is the salvation message of the world around us, and now Christians are buying it lock, stock, and barrel. Here's what the study went on to say. David Kinnaman, the president of Barna Research Group, said there is a tremendous amount of individualism in today's society, and that's reflected in the church too. Millions of Christians have grafted new age dogma onto their spiritual person. When we peel back the layers, we find that many Christians are using the way of Jesus to pursue the way of self. While we wring our hands about secularism spreading through culture, a majority of church-going Christians have embraced corrupt, me-centered Theology, what's the solution? This is Jesus, (laughs) the gospel, grasping the basics. Again, look, self-focused, pep talk Christianity won't sustain you when you hear a terminal diagnosis. It's not gonna hold you up in a storm. When sin has wrought destruction in your life, self-help dressed up in two Bible verses isn't gonna rescue you. It's not going to be of help. Look, chicken soup for the soul, Jesus, isn't going to sustain a life of perseverance when the heat of persecution comes. What do we need? We need a mighty Christ. We need Jesus to stand up full height right out of the pages of this book and our jaws to hit the floor at what we see. We need a prophet, priest, and king. We're gonna need to see Jesus is big enough to run the world. He's spinning the planets in Psalm 93. We need a Psalm 93 Jesus who has power over everything. He puts on strength as his belt. He is robed in majesty. That's the Jesus that Christians need. Uh, One who rules in undiminished sovereignty from of old. That's Psalm 93 Jesus. That's the one that we need. Why do we sing what we sang this morning? Here's what we sang this morning, just a review, I love this. Line number one, you, my God, have saved my soul. That's not self-focused Christianity. From the first line, you're the hero of the story, not me. You saved my soul, that's song number one. Song number two, the Lamb of God. The Lamb of God in my place, his blood poured out, my sin erased. Song number three, King of Kings, chorus. Praise the Father, praise the Son, praise the Spirit, three in one. God of glory, majesty, praise forever to the King of Kings. Song number four, we will feast in the house of Zion, a song that allows us to ponder what will happen in the future because Jesus is sovereign and he keeps his promises. Look, that, those truths put meat on the bones of faith. That's what we need. That's how we're going to remain. Let me ask you this question. Would you come back next week if the only thing that we promise to do is we're going to celebrate the power of Christ in our singing? We're going to trust in the grace of Christ in our praying? We're going to see the glory of Christ in his word? We're going to know the nearness of Christ at the table of the Lord? and then we promise we'll be done. Like that's our whole gathering. Gospel, 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 gospel. We sing the gospel, preach the Bible, pray the Bible, read the Bible. It's it's gospel filled. Every Sunday we wanna marinate in gospel doctrine. This next point, gospel doctrines are given to us in scripture to show us the glory of and fill our hearts with love for God. John opens his letter, and he says, this is Jesus. He's the Lord of life. He was from the beginning, the creator of the ends of the earth. He was in eternity past. There's no one like him. There's no other savior. And he says, this is the church, a community birthed by the proclamation of the gospel, a community being transformed by the truth of the gospel, a community devoted to the spread of the gospel. And John says, I love how he finishes right there in verse 4. I hope you didn't close your Bible because I, I heard a whole lot of ruffling going on. Verse 4, at the end, he says, we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. The joy of the church is to see the glory of Jesus Christ in the gospel. 
Two application points very quickly. Number one, study the glory of Jesus Christ. Study the glory of Jesus Christ. So here's a great Christian resource. Look how simple the cover is. Knowing Christ. I wonder what the book is about, right? <laughs> Knowing Christ by Mark Jones. Let me, just, let me just read the names of the chapters. Christ Declaration. Christ Dignity. Christ Covenant. Christ's incarnation, Christ's divinity, humanity, companion, faith, emotions, growth, reading, prayer, sinlessness, temptation. He just, it's just Jesus, Jesus, and then he's sharpening your vision so you go back to the word and you see all of this is revealed in God's word. Study something that helps you see Jesus more clearly and know him more deeply. Second, sing the glory of Christ. There's something about music that God has designed that it, it sticks to us. It's sticky. Music is sticky. Matter of fact, I even experienced it this morning. So I, park, uh, I parked across the, the street at 119, and I rode in the shuttle bus, and I got in the back of the bus, and somebody in the front of the bus made a joke and just for a second sang, the wheels of the bus go around. You know, they sang that word. Well, guess what? All morning, the song that's been in the back of my head. I'm walking up on the stage. And I'm going, wheels on the bus go around. It's stuck in my head. I'm going to be singing it all day, right? Earlier this week, um, I found myself, I'm singing. I just couldn't, uh, the song that was in my mind was, all glory be to Christ our King. I'm just singing that here and there, kind of doing my stuff around the house. And then later in the afternoon, here's the thing. This happens, Right? is you hear somebody else in your house and they're singing the same song and you're kind of like, did I catch it from you? Did you catch it from me? Who was singing it first, right? Well, what if we intentionally chose some music in a way that would orient our hearts toward Jesus daily? I'm not saying it has to be like a rule, but what a wonderful practice, right? I kind of thought after that day, I'm like, well, if this catches around our house and I hear my kids singing all glory be to Christ, what song am I going to sing tomorrow morning, right? Well, let's just set the playlist early. Tunes my soul to worship Jesus throughout the day. Study the glory of Christ. Sing the glory of Christ. I love that joy piece there at the end because here's the thing. The best version of the Church of Brook Hills future is the one where the members are steeped in the gospel of Jesus Christ. All the good stuff grows when we grasp the basics again and again and again.